welcome to the Visceral Voice Podcast. I'm your host, Christine Schneider. Every two weeks on this podcast, I talk with voice specialists, manual therapists, health specialists, psychotherapists, movement practitioners, and professional voice users about voice science, function, medication, movement, puberty and aging, and everything in between. I am on a quest not only to become a better manual therapist, but also to learn everything I can about the living, breathing body and its intricate connection to the voice. This podcast documents the continuation of my learning and my experience as a professional singer, a nutritional consultant, and a manual therapist. Join me every two weeks as we strive to provide current, knowledgeable, creative, and compassionate information to help restore, regain, and create happiness and success in your vocal journey. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining me. In this intro episode, we're actually going to mix things up a little bit. I have my friend Jenna Patsusik interviewing me. I was out to dinner with my colleague, Mary Saunders Barton, and she recommended that we start the podcast off with my story. And when I thought about doing that as a monologue, it sounded quite boring. (laughs) So I did it as a dialogue, and my friend Jenna was gracious enough to help me out with this. So here's my intro episode, letting you know a little about me, your host, Christine Schneider. Thanks so much for listening. Hi, Christine. Hi, Jenna. Welcome to the Visceral Voice Podcast. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for doing this for me. You're so welcome. So I thought it would be fun for our listeners to get to know you first, since you'll be doing most of the interviewing for the rest of the episodes. Yeah. Thank you. Where are you from? Uh, I grew up, well, kind of all over, actually. My dad was in the military, so I spent five years in Europe, two in Germany, three in England, and we moved to California, and then we settled. He retired, and we moved to Colorado. So I grew up in Colorado, and then I moved to Oklahoma City for school, and then I moved back to Colorado for a little bit before moving to New York City to start my performing career, and now I currently live in the Poconos. Wow. Going back to the mountains, I see. Yes. Yes. I needed me some mountains. <laughs> <laughs> so when did you get into singing? I got into singing when I was young, really young. My sister was singing and I always wanted to be just like my sister. So anything she did, I wanted to do. And so she started playing French horn and I started playing French horn and she started singing and I started singing. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So I was in elementary school when I started singing and I started taking lessons around sixth grade. Then I started to perform. I thought that I would major in French horn. And then in the last couple of years of high school, my mom saw me up on stage. I was doing Reno Sweeney and Anything Goes. And my mom said, wow, you, you really want to perform on stage, don't you? And I said, yes. And she said, then why are we looking at schools for French horn? Why are we looking at Eastman and Oberlin for French horn? Why don't we look for, for music theater? And that's how you ended up at Oklahoma City. That's how I ended up. Well, I ended up in Oklahoma City because they would let me double major. So they allowed me to major in musical theater, although I switched my major to voice, vocal performance. And then I also double majored in French horn performance. Wow. Do you think playing French horn aided you as a singer or impeded your vocal function? Oh, it totally impeded my vocal function. (laughs) Absolutely. So much subglottic pressure. Uh, I loved it. I loved playing. I'm really grateful for 
the musicianship that it allowed me to learn and have, you know, I wouldn't change it, but it definitely made singing harder to the point where once I graduated, I actually haven't played. I think I've played French horn maybe mm, four times since I graduated college. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. How did you balance doing French horn and voice when they were sort of competing with each other on what you were supposed to do mechanically with your instrument? Yeah, it was really, really tough. I struggled. I really struggled both playing French horn and with the voice. I mean, I was I was taking 22 credit hours a semester. You would find me in class, in the practice room, or asleep. Like, I, I had no social life, really. It's a good thing I didn't drink at all. <laughs> yeah, and it was really tricky. I mean, I would switch back and forth in the practice room from practicing voice and then I'd get on my French horn and then I practice voice again. And now that I'm a therapist and that I know more about voice science, I'm like, how did I, what was I doing? What was I thinking? It was, it was really, really difficult for sure. Now I know that something big happened in high school Yeah, that I want you to talk about because I think it's important for our listeners to know this story because I think this is really how you came full circle from being a singer to getting into therapy as well. Yeah, it definitely is. So when I was in, it kind of starts when I was in eighth grade. When I was in eighth grade, I was in a car accident with my mom And at the time, I had had a concussion, um, some whiplash, and that's all we were really concentrating on or thinking about. And then over time, I started getting really bad abdominal pain. You know, my brother had been diagnosed with ulcers and everything, so I was getting tested for all of that. It was nothing. Everything was perfectly fine, and we couldn't figure out what was going on, and then as about a year later, like my freshman year of high school, I started getting a lot of chest pain. So I didn't have the abdominal pain anymore. I had a lot of chest pain and it got worse and worse. I kind of describe it as a corset tourniquet Mm. that just felt like someone was turning the handle on this tourniquet and making it tighter and tighter and tighter on my chest. And breathing was getting extremely difficult to do. And we, we were struggling to find out what was wrong. At one point I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. So I had shots directly into my chest, steroid shots. I found out I'm allergic to steroids. So I was uh, hospitalized for a week with my reaction to the steroid shots and then uh, we just kind of kept going through doctors. So I was I was marching in marching band. I was singing all the time. And every day after marching band, my mom would be there waiting for me and she would take me to directly to the hospital because I, I couldn't breathe well enough. And then fast forward a little bit, it's my sophomore year. I was in marching band. We were going to state. And I marched. And then after our preliminaries, they told me that maybe I shouldn't march finals. And at this point, I I actually knew that I was dying. And it's a very tricky thing when you are someone who knows that you're dying. Uh, and I said, I know that it's risky for me going out there, but I really want to do it. And if this is the last thing I get to do, then at least let me do something that I love to do with the people that I love. So they let me march finals 
And so I went out and marched. I was immediately brought into the bus waiting for the ambulance to pick me up. And my uh, friend and section leader, Amy Gramillion, came into the bus and she came up over me and I remember it so clearly. It's a very profound memory and her tears were just falling on me and I was crying and she was just kind of checking on me to see how I was doing. And at that point, I really felt like maybe I maybe I was going to die that night. So I'm on the bus with Amy Gramillion. She you know, tells me that, that I'm very pale and that my lips are blue and and but she stayed with me. And then when my mom got to me, we kind of made a decision. Did we want to take the ambulance or because I needed to get on oxygen right away? Or was I going to be okay to get to the ER before I was put on oxygen? And I decided not to put my parents through that financially with the ambulance. So I drove with my mom and we went to the ER and I was put on oxygen and then drove home to Colorado Springs. And Amy came over that night with my medal. We had won first place and it was a thrill. It was such a thrill. And I, I'm so grateful that I got out there and I did it because now since I survived, I'm like, oh man, it's an opportunity I would have missed, but it was really great. And so then about four days later, I went to say goodbye. I had a friend's brother going out on a mission. And so I went over to say goodbye to his brother. I was there for his going away party. And an acquaintance of mine came up to me and she said, I think I know what's going on with you. I think you have something called pectus excavatum or excavatum. And here's the information for a doctor who can help you. Some random person that went to my school. Like a fellow (laughs) classmate? A fellow classmate said that to me. And I'm like, I'm willing to try anything. So we called the doctor. I was in that week for an appointment. And he looked at me and he was and he said, you need thoracic surgery. He was a pediatrician. And I had to wait about a month for the surgery. We weren't entirely sure that I was going to make it that long. Can you explain what the condition is that he finally diagnosed you with? Yeah. So I had pectus excavatum. It's a concavity of the chest. It's more common in boys than it is girls. And it's usually, if someone needs surgery, it's usually done earlier, like when a boy is growing around eight, but it's uncommon in girls. But what ended up happening for me was that the car accident that I had been in, we think actually caused a rotation from the seatbelt. So how hard I was forced forward at that age, we think that's what caused a rotation. So what ended up happening was that I had a 90 degree rotation of the sternum. And so I had my right ribs were coming towards my heart and my xiphoid process, which is at the bottom of the sternum was actually puncturing the lung. So I had one lung that was being punctured, which is obviously why I was in a lot of pain and having a hard time breathing. And then as the sternum twisted, the right ribs were heading towards the heart. That's what was about to kill me if it had gotten to the actual, you know, mediastinum, pericardium, and heart. Could you feel that? Could you feel that twist? That's what I describe as that tourniquet, that like corset tourniquet. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I did everything I could to just breathe as minimally as possible. 
and just got into a habit of barely breathing. Wow. So I was at school. I was sitting outside my French class because I had been in a lot of pain. The school nurse walked by and she asked what was happening. And I said I was in a lot of pain. And she called the doctor's office and got them to move up my surgery two weeks. So my surgery was November 16th. And it saved my life. I had two doctors working in the surgery. They took out the costal cartilage, so like four inches of 12 ribs. They removed the xiphoid process. They had to wire and rotate the sternum back. They had to cut off some of the sternum to wire and rotate it back. And that was that was it. When he came out, he said it was the most severe case he had ever seen. He asked if he could document it in a book he was writing and said that had the school nurse not called, there's no way I would have made it because the rib cage, the right ribs were too close to the heart. It would have, it would have punctured the heart. What does it feel like telling the story now? <laughs> I feel very emotional. I feel very vulnerable. <laughs> it is a visceral reaction, but it's part of my journey. And I've definitely come to the point where I'm, I'm really, really grateful for the journey that I've had with the difficulties and all. <laughs> the good, the bad, I'll take it all because it's, it's my journey. I'm sure it makes you relate to a lot of the problems that your clients have and bring into you because it, it actually probably makes you a better practitioner having gone through something so traumatic, being able to help other people who are also experiencing trauma and get through that. Yeah, I think empathy is one of my strengths. And I think that it's because of that experience. I know what it's like to be in pain. I know what it's like to feel like you're dying or even know that you're probably going to die soon. And then I know what it's like to not. Then I didn't die. So then that was really tricky too, because all of a sudden I'm able to have a career I always said I wanted, but didn't plan to have. And I, I wanted to feel alive. And so I would do crazy things to feel alive. I'd go out and be incredibly adventurous and do dangerous things to help me have that adrenaline rush and say like, ah, I'm alive, I'm alive, I'm still alive, you know? And I think that can happen to a lot of people who go through near-death experiences, that it's kind of recreating that. Yeah. It feels like an addiction almost. I remember actually while I was doing a show in Colorado, I went and saw this massage therapist because, you know, you were in New York. And <laughs> and I was talking to him about how I had just hiked a 14er. And, you know, that was like the thing to do in Colorado. And I was telling him that there was this man while I was sitting at the summit. You know, it's you're up 14,000 feet. Like the oxygen is very thin. Mm -hmm. And there was this guy who was doing summit runs. So he would run up to the summit, run back down halfway down the mountain, run back up to the summit, run back down. I think he did it three times in the course of the time that it took me to just walk up the mountain once. And I was telling him about it and he was like, yeah, you get sort of addicted to that rush and that high, you know, that adrenaline high uh, living out here. So <laughs> I can only imagine being a teenager who just survived death and then you know the possibilities seem endless at that point yeah yeah exactly so okay so this is the summer before your junior or senior year of high school summer before my junior year what's the recovery like on that well I was at home for eight weeks in bed 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. There was no rib cage protecting the heart then. So you could see the heart beating right out of the chest, basically. So even when I was in the hospital, at first they had given me a roommate and my mom kept asking for a single room. And then her friends, the roommate's friends had come in, they were tossing around a football and it came over and landed on the other side of my bed. Mm-hmm. And my mom was freaking out and she went and told them to get them out of there. And so then I did get my own room. <laughs> but if it had hit me, it would have killed me. There was nothing protecting the chest. So then when I was at home, same thing. I couldn't have hugs. I, I couldn't have anyone touch me for the eight-week recovery time. So I could move around. You know, I, they set up a little bed for me downstairs in the living room in front of the TV. And then the crazy thing I did, though, was <laughs> the marching band was marching in the Orange Bowl Parade in Florida at Disney. It was scheduled for like seven or eight weeks after my surgery. And I went, I went, I marched, I went to Disney World, I went on all Did the- you get on a plane? Yeah, I got on a plane. I was told not to ride any- uh, Rides? Any rides. And I did anyway. Now I'm like, why did I do that? That was so dumb. But I rode all the rides. The unfortunate part was that it was like out of sight, out of mind. It was done. I didn't want to talk about it anymore. I didn't want to feel it anymore. I didn't want to process it at all. It was like, all right. That was two and a half years of having a very slow process of dying and I'm alive and I just don't want to, I don't want to go there. So I just started acting like I was normal. I was also cast as Maria in Sound of Music. So that came full circle later on, but I was cast as Maria in Sound of Music and did that about four months later. I was doing that. And I remember in rehearsal with Lonely Goat Herd and stuff, I had to keep taking breaks and asking for for breaks because I was having such a hard time breathing. <laughs> um, this was after after my surgery. But the thing is, is that I was never given PT. Wow. They said, oh, she's a child. She'll have full recovery. There's nothing to worry about. And I have not worked with a single music director who hasn't asked me or told me that I need to breathe. It's something that doesn't come naturally for me. You couldn't even see me breathing. Right. <laughs> so. I know that we've talked about post-surgery. At some point in college, you sort of realized that you were completely mentally disconnected from your entire thoracic cavity. Yeah. And I'm just thinking about how incredible that is as a singer, since so much of the movement and support that we need to make the sounds, especially for you, who is a high soprano, how do you do that without being able to feel anything happening in your thoracic cavity? Maybe the question (laughs) is, when did you notice that you had completely disconnected any sort of mental relationship to your thoracic cavity? And how was that impacting you as a singer? That's a really good question. I think I realized it. I think I realized it kind of later in college, maybe junior or senior year, because I went through such a traumatic freshman year. So then I had to work through the physical traumas from high school and the emotional traumas from my freshman year. And honestly, working through that thoracic cavity is something that Joan and I still have to work on. I didn't start getting actual, I'm still getting feeling back in that area. You know, I didn't have any feeling in my breasts up until about four or five years ago. Then I started doing a little bit of breath work and some of the feelings started coming back. And I'm talking about the tissue. I couldn't feel anything touching me, so I couldn't feel the touch. And slowly now I, I have, 
I don't have full feeling back in that area, but I at least have substantial feeling back in that area. I can kind of tell for the most part if something's touching me, but it's it's an area that gets cut off very easily for me. That and the heart chakra and throat chakra are the ones that close up very quickly for me. So I still work on it. So you finish high school as a rambunctious teen who survived death. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're still playing French horn. You're still singing. You're you know performing in your high school musicals. And then you decide, I want to go to college and I want to study music. Yeah. And at some point on that college journey, you went from, I want to study music and play French horn to, I want to be able to do French horn and sing. Yeah. So then was Oklahoma City your number one college? Like that's where you wanted to go? That's where I wanted to go because they would let me double major and they had such a great music theater program at the time. Great. Okay, great. So you get to Oklahoma City and you start singing freshman year. What's that like? (laughs) So my very first day I went in, there was a welcome master class. Wait, did you tell anybody during the admissions process about your thoracic surgery? No, no one knew that. It wasn't, at this point, I hadn't talked to anyone about it. Okay. You know, my family knew obviously, but we never talked about it. Then that day after master class, I walked up to the teacher and I said, I don't know what made me think that it was important for her to know, but I went up and I told her that I said, I just want you to know that I had a major thoracic surgery in high school. And she looked at me and she said, why are you telling me? Do you think I, I don't know what I remember her saying. My perception of what she said was, why are you telling me this? Do you think that I care? Whether she said, do you think that I care or not, I don't know. But she did say, why are you telling me this? Which sort of launched our relationship. Does not sound like a warm, welcoming environment for a freshman at college to receive. Yeah, I really, I really freaked out right away. I was like, oh my gosh, I, like, I was right. I shouldn't talk about this. Who wants to hear about something like this? Who wants to hear about trauma? Like, Why did I even say anything? those kind of thoughts going through my head. And then then I started studying with her week by week and I was awful. I was really, really bad. I didn't understand what she was trying to teach me. Instead of understanding a technique, I was imitating her voice. At the time she was 83. So <laughs> a very low, she teaches low larynx anyway, but it was a very low depressed larynx. And she thought that I was a very good actress, but that I couldn't sing. She constantly told me that I should go get my degree in theater and that I would never be a singer. We had a day called Black Wednesday. We called it Black Wednesday. It was a day that she had told, I think there were nine of us freshmen, and she had told us that if we didn't come in and all show major improvements, then she was going to kick all of us out. So it wasn't just like the person who didn't show major improvement. If we all didn't show major improvement, we were all out of there. So we called it Black Wednesday. We went into master class. I was a mess. I think I was the last person to go. I was the last person to go. And I sang Nel Corpio Non Mi Sento. And it was really terrible. And I was shaking and everything. And she looked at me and she just was like, again. <laughs> and I tried again. And it was even worse, probably. <laughs> And she said that she would make her decision and let us know. I went back to my room. I was crying. I was such a mess. And I 
decided to go over to her studio. Someone had come out. And so I knocked on her door knowing that no one was in there. And I said, you know, can I have a minute of time with you? I just want to say that I totally understand you kicking me out of your studio and not thinking that I'm good, but please don't get rid of everyone because of me. They're all showing progress and it's not fair to lump us all together. Please don't do that. She said, now you're ready. Ready for what? And I'm ready for what? And she said um, she wanted to see me every day, Monday through Friday for lessons. So she gave me a lesson every day, which... I mean, if Joan were to say that to me, I'd be like, yes, (laughs) right? But I was terrified. I was really terrified. And what ended up happening was I was so scared that there was a bathroom outside her studio and I was in the bathroom throwing up before every voice lesson. So then I'm like dealing with throwing up and then having to go sing. So not only am I playing for Torn, but I'm also like singing on (laughs) really raw... throat, right? (laughs) An agitated pharynx, Um, if you will. Oh, totally. It was so agitated. And that was, that was that. That was my freshman year. I mean, I remember going back at Christmas and singing at church and my mom cried. She sat there crying and she said, what has that school done to you? Because now you were so terrified to sing? Yeah. And how awful I sounded. I sounded terrible and I was so terrified to sing. So I I finished that sem- I finished that year and I I le- I bought a car and I drove to LA and I stayed with friends in LA. My mom was so mad at me, but I did it. I just I didn't want to be around anyone that I knew. <laughs> I mean, I knew these friends, but you know, it was escape. I just wanted an escape of all of it and I'd try to sing, but I didn't know what I was doing. So I just lived in LA for 3 months during that time. We heard that they would give me more horn scholarship if I came back. So my mom convinced me to go back and switch voice studios. Did the school make that a difficult process? No, they didn't. The school was great about it, but none of the voice teachers wanted me. I was so bad. (laughs) So I switched into a studio. I told her I was leaving. She said, good, (laughs) basically. Then I went to the new studio. I went in for my first lesson and I was like, can I just sing? with my voice instead of trying to produce a sound that I don't understand what I'm trying to do. And he said, yes, (laughs) of course. And I started singing that way. And he, he was like a dog chasing his tail. He went around one way and ran around the other way and went around the other way again. And was just like, oh my gosh, you're soprano. Oh my gosh. Cause she only let me sing from D to D Mm. in my presagio. It was a very rough range for me. So that's all she had let me sing in. So when I sang higher. So when I sang actual soprano literature, he was totally stoked. And then we built an amazing relationship. Honestly, there was not a lot of technique that I learned, but it wasn't about the technique from this teacher. He was just getting me back to love what I was doing, mm-hmm. which is was quite a task. That's Larry Keller. And I will always be grateful to Larry Keller because I, I do think he's a very good teacher, but he he was just a rock star in bringing me back to life with my voice. And this was something that my singing and my playing French horn kept me alive during the time in high school. And then all of a sudden, I'm so afraid to do the thing that kept me alive. So it was really convoluted in my head and in my body, for sure. So then he sent me, I got better, and he sent me to Nats. 
and he pe- he was peeking in and he saw that I was I was shaking. I couldn't get through the piece. I was shaking so badly. I was and so much of it was just throwing me into I guess kind of a PTSD. And so it came up with many of my teachers that I should start taking beta blockers. And I wish that what really would have come up or really would have been encouraged was some form of body-oriented psychotherapy or somatic experiencing or something to get rid of the trauma, both that I had gotten from voice lessons my freshman year or perceived voice lessons my freshman year and from the two and a half years of physical trauma earlier. But instead, I, I started taking a beta blocker and continued taking them throughout my entire performing career which ended up, in my opinion, being a, a drawn curtain on my, on my energy and on my expression and soul. But I have clients on beta blockers for auditions or for opening shows or whatever, but they always get off of them. I didn't. I had to take a beta blocker. When I was doing long runs, I started taking that beta blocker earlier and earlier and earlier because of the adrenaline rush that would happen. It would kick in. I'd wake up. I'd be up for about two hours and I'd get an adrenaline rush and it would freak me out. And so I'd take a little bit of a beta blocker only when I was performing. But, you know, I did nine month run, a almost three year run. I, you know, I, I had some long runs that I did of shows and I was getting by from, from taking a beta blocker. Hmm. So when did you decide to switch from performing to laryngeal massage? I had been trying to convince other people that singers need help, that we need some form of manual therapy and Everyone would be like, oh, no, I don't want to do that or no, what? No. So finally, I had gotten back. I did the Sound of Music tour and then I did A Wonderful Life. Yeah. And then I did nutrition. I did a nutrition program and got certified as a nutritional consultant. And throughout the nutrition program that I was doing, I was like, yeah, I want to be a therapist. I want to do manual therapy and I want to specialize with the voice. And at that point, had you decided I don't want to perform anymore or you were like, maybe this is a sensible side gig? Yeah. I was like, this is a total sensible side gig. I, at this point, no, I absolutely still wanted to perform and still was performing. So I, I started massage school. I didn't tell anyone. I didn't tell my family. I didn't tell my friends. I told my agent, he was the first person I told, okay, I'm in massage school, so <laughs> only send me to stuff that we really want. I ended up leaving for a semester because I went and did 10 types, which I did Anna Held, which was a, a dream role of mine. I really, really love that music. And so I left, I went and did 10 types for a semester, and then which they allowed me to just take a little semester off and then come back. And then I went back and then I guess three days after I graduated, not graduation. I didn't I didn't go to my graduation because three days after I finished school, I was leaving to go to Israel to start Volca People. Right out of a performance, show in the middle, and then right back into a gig. So but it was great. And I knew I wanted to specialize with the voice. You know, I wasn't getting any of that training in school. I knew that it would come. And I had the Volca people, I had my cast of Volca people to just play. They were my manual playground. <laughs> How did you even learn about laryngeal therapy? That's such a great question. So I knew I wanted to specialize with the voice. I didn't know that a thing of laryngeal therapy existed. But through working with 
vocal people and they'd start telling their friends and then their friends would start telling their voice teachers. And through that, I met Tom Burke and I also met Shirley Gerson. I met up with Shirley Gerson in the very first hangout we had. She said, oh, well, if you want to do manual therapy for the larynx, you should study laryngeal manipulation with Jacob Lieberman. She gave me the name and I found his contact and I contacted him immediately. And so I kept after him and I'm like, but I'm coming. When can I come? When can I come? When can I come? You know, he said he was drawn to my kindness and persistence. I was kindly persisting. Pleasantly pushy, as my grandma likes to say. Pleasantly pushy. (laughs) Yeah, that's perfect. And so he let me come. So my husband and I, we went over to London. I studied with him a bit in his private clinic. I went to the hospital and studied with him more there. He worked on me. And it was perfect because I was going directly from London to a week of rehearsal in Israel to a three-week gig in Japan. I actually had a session right before I had to sing. So I got to experience what it was like to sing after treatment. And I remember being in Israel in the rehearsal and the mezzo, we had never worked together. And we were singing um, the end of the classical piece. She she stopped singing and the we finish. And the music director looks at her and he's like, what are you doing? Why'd you stop singing? And she was like, I'm sorry, but Christine sounds so good. I couldn't sing. <laughs> And I was like, yes, Dr. Lieberman, (laughs) this is it. This is awesome. I love that. Yeah. And I'm like, thank you. Oh my gosh. Thank you. And, and I, I just felt, it felt very free. Everything was so free and so open. And so that was really cool of an experience to be able to sing and, and see what I'm trying to do with my clients, the outcome that we're trying to achieve. Then I took a class of his in Vancouver. I brought him into New York to do a class and then brought him into my clinic in New York to work with me and some of my clients. And then I just started uh, taking other classes that do anterior neck work. And, and now I'm creating my own continuing ed course for massage therapists. It's so amazing <laughs> because I've, I've gotten to watch you basically, I mean, I've, I've reaped the benefits of every new chapter of your educational life <laughs> mm-hmm. um, because I've been a client for so long. But what's really inspiring to me listening to you talk about your journey now is thinking about Seth Godin. He's an entrepreneurial business guy, and he always talks about being the purple cow. Mm. Why would you try to be the regular cow in a sea of cows, be the purple cow and stand out and do the thing that will make you unique? And you really have done that. You've taken something that you thought would be beneficial for performers, taken a few loves and interests of yours, and then combined them into something so specific that no one else is really doing this at the caliber at which you do it with the prestige of clients that you treat. And now you've turned it into a full-time job. And now you're going to yeah, be training new practitioners, which is super exciting. Yeah. What's your hope? For listeners of this podcast, what do you hope that singers can take away or voice users or practitioners? I hope they can get out of it everything I'm trying to get out of it. I have to spend my finances taking manual therapy courses because I need the continuing ed training, which isn't a problem for me because I just love learning. How can I learn more about the voice how can I take classes? You know, I can't go to Utah and take a vocology course, but I really want to. And then I thought, well, why don't I just start asking 
all of the practitioners I know. I've, I've made a lot of connections through networks that I'm in, teams that I'm on in the city and, and elsewhere. And I'm like, why don't I just take advantage of their knowledge and, and learn from each person that I know? That's why I'm creating this podcast is for really selfishly for me to learn <laughs> and on the journey, hopefully to inspire or help other people learn along as well. Okay. I want to ask you some rapid fire questions. <laughs> okay. What is some advice that you would want to give to an aspiring young performer? I would want to say that each of us is unique and special. We hear through the door, we hear people sing all day long and they sound amazing. We see people dancing circles around us and we wonder if we have it or, or not. The moment that things changed for me was when I realized that the only thing that I could bring in that no one else had was me. Walking in as me, I searched, what are the words I use to describe myself? Compassionate, empathetic. Walking in with my qualities and really being that is when a shift happened for me in New York City in my career. That's when I really started booking work. So my advice would be to know that what you have, just being you, is what you need. That's what makes you unique. I love that. Be that purple cow. <laughs> I also want to say, never stop learning. Learn. Just keep learning. Fall in love with learning and do it for the rest of your life. You will do it for the rest of your life, but want to do it for the rest of your life. What has been your greatest professional achievement? I would say being at the forefront of popularizing laryngeal therapy in the U.S., definitely. Believing in it. We're at a point now that, well, about four or five years ago, producers of Broadway shows started reimbursing or paying for sessions. So ask your agents <laughs> to get it in your contracts because other people do. And it's interesting in the last year or two because we went from people coming in saying, I've never heard about this, laryngeal therapy, vocal massage, I don't know anything about this. And now people are coming in, they're sending me emails asking for it. More and more people know about it. And it's so exciting. What has been your greatest professional setback? My anxiety. What do you wish you would have learned sooner? <laughs> Three things. The mind-body connection and how to release trauma from the body. The second would be to play more vocally. So more exploration have a lot of fun with it. Don't worry if it sounds good. I always have gone for pretty sounds and I wish that I would have explored sound more. And then I also wish I would have learned more about grounding and being present in the present moment earlier in my life. If the listeners would like to learn more about you and what you're doing, what is the best <laughs> way to contact you? <laughs> Well, we switched things up for you all in this. Jenna has been amazing at playing host. And so thank you, Jenna, for being here and hosting for me on this intro podcast so that you can know about me. So thank you for being my host on this episode. You're welcome. Thank you for sharing your gifted hands with me. <laughs> it's been my pleasure. <laughs> Thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like us. Tell your colleagues, your students, and your friends. Please subscribe, write a review, and find us on Facebook at Lifelight Massage. You can also check out my website at lifelightmassage.com. 
Please listen to the next episode with my voice mentor, Joan Later.